Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with two-time All-Star and World Series champ, A.J. Brzezinski. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a two-time All-Star, and he was a World Series champion in 2005. He's currently an MLB analyst on Fox. We spent a lot of time together over the years. It's been a while. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Can't wait to catch up with A.J. Perzinski. A.J., thanks for coming on the program. What's up? Do you still go by DeBoone, or do you go by Booney, or what do you go by now? You know, I'm I'm growing up a little bit, AJ. I'm 52. Uh, once in a while, I'll give the Boone shout out, but I, I'm kind of more Brett these days. Booney, you know, Booney. I don't know. You you call me my time, our time together. You know, I was the Boone, right? That's what you call. Yeah, me. you were duh. You were duh Boone, da, da, da Boone, not the da Boone. Yeah, you know, I go yeah. by whatever. I'm easy. I'm easy. I just wonder because you know when I see your brother, he, he's Booney. He's always Booney. So I feel like well, Aaron is Booney. You're Boone. But ori- a right, originally know, dad's know, really dad's really. Yeah, but dad is really Booney, isn't he? Bob Boone is is kind of Booney. You know, they used to call my grandpa Ike for Ike Boone, but I think dad was Booney. That we all kind of got the. It depends, you know, who's in the room. So you uh, you can stick with your protocol. I'll, I'll be fine with it either way. <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think I've ever called you Brett in your life. No, and when I played after about 1999, nobody called me Brett. It was just Boone. Oh, Boone's here. And I just got used to it, so it was like you know. Yeah. I still have people call me that. They're like Boone. Uh, can we can we talk at four o'clock? I said, yeah, that's that's fine. You know who originally gave me that, AJ? Who who do you think gave me the that that Boone label? I was in Seattle and Mark McLemore, uh, who was ah. on those early two thousand Mariner teams. Well, Mark McLemore played with my dad on the Angels in the eighties, so I was doing an interview, and uh, you know how after the game, I don't know, a couple couple reporters are at my at my locker, and I'm just kind of holding court. And Mac walks by headed to the shower and he pops his head in and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I played with Booney. That's his dad. This is the Boone. You hear that? This is the Boone print it. And that's where it originally came from. So everybody in Seattle started calling me, oh, the Boone. That's what Macklemore called him because his dad was Booney. So that's where it came from originally. I like it. And then you took it and ran with it, which I would have done. I took a cool nickname like that. I would have ran with it. I ran with it. Frosted tips. We had it all working. Well, and yeah, I, I, I saw you. you then you the you grabbed onto the frosted tips. It, it became kind of a, uh, I don't know. For a while there, the frosted tips were were pretty cool. A lot of guys had them. My yeah. buddy uh, Richie Saxon grabbed them. He had them. Yeah, yeah. A Rod oh, tried to. He didn't pull it off very well. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> uh, I went full, right. full blonde though for a while, and uh, you know when you had like when you go tips, and then you go to go full blonde for a while, and then you 
kind of lose interest in the tips because once you go full blown, you realize how hard it is to keep it. So you got to go just back to natural. And now I just have gray hair, so I don't need to buy it anymore. Right. When you had the white, though, when you go full blonde, it's kind of shocking at first. Then it's kind of cool. Then when it grows out, the roots grow out. Then you're kind of Billy Idol. Yeah. And then you have to go do it every couple of weeks. Right. And that's a problem because then you start like I had to stop doing it after like two years because I started uh, getting like blisters on my head from the chemicals. And I was like, man, my hair's going to fall out. <laughs> but then you're like a chick then. Then you got to do the roots. Hey, I got to get my roots done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, becomes exactly. a whole. Because, it it takes on it takes on a life of its own. All right, if you weren't a big league catcher for nine, hey, if you weren't a big league catcher for nineteen years, what would you have done? Where would you be now? I have no idea. I, I, I really don't. People ask me this question, and I have no thoughts or no desire. I never thought I would be anything else. It sounds cocky or dumb or crazy, but. I mean, I never really thought of anything else. I never thought I was not going to be a major league baseball player. I, I never, you know, I signed out of high school, but I never really thought I was going to go and ended up signing a professional contract. And I, 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 people have asked me that a million times, and I have no answer because I really don't know. No, I, I know exactly what you mean by it because – when you have that mentality, you know, we're young and we're 18 and we're naive and, and we are kind of dumb. We have no idea how tough it is, you know, the, the field that we're going into is going to be. But I think having that, call it naivety, I think probably helped you in the long run because you just didn't know how hard, you know, you meet a young player and, and I'm sure you do, you know, you're around players all the time. You meet a young player and some of them are really sure of themselves you know, naive, but sure of themselves. I'll take that guy. And then you see the guy that, you know, he, he walks the walk. He, he's, he's got that body. He's got that speed. He's got that cannon. He's got that bat speed, but there's a little bit of a hesitancy on how, how assured of himself he really is, you know, cause this, something like you were just explaining, just saying there was no other option that's a thing in young players I look to because it's like this guy believes in himself. You know, he's going to get humbled along the way. But if you truly believe, I'm a firm believer. If you believe you're great, you are great. And you will be if you're not right then. And and it's it's a pretty cool feature. And as we grow up and as we mature, and like I said, as we get humbled by this game, we learn through the process. But but that's a pretty it's a pretty powerful weapon that that just being confident in oneself. Oh, dude, I tell well, you have kids. I have a 15-year-old son, a freshman in high school. I tell them all the time, I'd rather have a guy that fakes it, and, is, and I'll take that guy to go win, and I'll take a guy that's over-talented, over right, and doesn't truly know what he's got. You're 100% correct. I'll take a guy a little less talented that just says, I'm going to beat you or I'm, I'm better than you, even though he might not be, you know, over a guy, and he believes it, like you said, that, like, he can go out that day and he'll compete his ass off and in a bat or he'll compete his ass off on the mound and he'll do something. You know, he might only throw 89, but he'll put it in a good spot and he'll believe that he can get you out And then, versus a guy that throws 100 in the back of your mind, like you said, doesn't really 100% believe that he can do it. I'll take the other guy every day and I'll, go, and I'll beat your 2,500 guys with my 2,589 guys. Without a doubt, without a doubt, the, 
the like like I said, the mind. It's it's such a powerful thing. Uh, you were born in New York, but you grew up in Orlando. You still live in Orlando. Uh, yes, sir. What was a What was AJ Perzinski like as a little kid? I got to hear this. Give me a snapshot of your I mean, childhood. Baseball. Was there other sports? Uh, I knew you grew up in that neck of the woods. You and Johnny Damon were, were teammates for a minute over at Dr. Phillips. I lived down the street for about 10 years uh, during my career. But give me a snapshot. A.J. Brzezinski, childhood. What do you think it was? I was an only bleached, child, so you tell me what I was. Bleached hair, a little bit spoiled. Uh, <laughs> probably picking fights. Uh, other, t- other team didn't like you. Yeah, yeah, all those. I, didn't have the ble- I, 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 I had a lot of that. I didn't have the bleached hair, but I was an only child. Uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. I mean, they were very, you know, middle, very lower middle class, you know, that I never wanted for anything. Um, uh, but, yeah, you know, it's kind of like my professional career. You know, I was kind of a not a nice – I don't know that I would say not a nice person, but I was competitive as hell. And I knew how to draw the er- the ire of the other team and – I could piss some people off and, you know, I got in a couple of fights in high school, but our whole team did. And that wasn't a big deal. And, uh, it kind of carried over to professional baseball, but you know, I tell people all the time that that's just the way I had to do it. I had to compete and I had to be kind of a, an asshole and I had to play angry and kind of started at a young age. And I was just the way it was like, we just talked about a mindset. I had to have a mindset that I hated the other team, even if I didn't, even if my, you know, my best friends on the other team, I still wanted to kill them because it was just a, me versus them mentality. Uh, and that kind of started at a young age and then it just kind of grew and to, you know, you, you know, Booney, once it gets into a, into the media, then it takes on a life of its own and then it becomes just fun and, and, to, and to see how far you can take it sometimes. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now and they are the official sponsor of the Boone podcast. Dan. Thanks, Boone. Hoops fans. The latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code Boone at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN red line 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369. And now back to my interview with A.J. Perzinski. You know, people ask me all the time about A.J. Because, you know, on the field, you were controversial. You get you did this, you did that. And I said, <laughs> A.J.'s gotten to a point in his career. 
where that that was kind of his personality. Now it's his persona. Now he's taken on that persona because we had met, you know, off field. We'll talk about the Nike trips a little bit. We'll touch on it uh, coming up in the podcast. But, uh, you know, I got to know you and then I would laugh at you on the field. Like, look at AJ doing this and that, as we all do. You know, I, I think you you made a great point. When you look across the field, you want to hate your opponent. I used to hate when I when I had good friends that were pitchers. And even if they were on my team, because I knew one day I'd have to face them, I felt like that gave them the advantage. You know, they might give me a look when I'm coming to the plate or, or a smile. Or they might, hey, the boon's coming up. You know, they might say something just a little bit off. I didn't like that. So I'd rather not know. I'd rather not know my opponent's period. Like you were saying, you wanted to hate your opponent. The more as the more we play in this game and and the longer we're in the league, we get to know everybody in the other team. And, and you know, you know, you think, wow, I used to hate that guy. And he's actually a really good guy. But uh, I think it's something you play with. It's a chip on your shoulder. And, and in your situation, in your case, it took you a long way and you, and you played a lot of years being that guy and having that kind of reputation, even though guys that knew you like me across the diamond knew that it was kind of, you know, I could get a smile out of you. Like give it a rest Brzezinski. Oh, all right. Boone knows, oh, my yeah. act. Well, no. but it's, but it's cool. No, you know, what was fun about it. And it, it, listen, there was things you could always wish to look back and say, man, I wish I would have done that different, but you know, what was fun about it is, like you said, you, I could use it to my advantage in certain situations. There were certain people I knew before we took the field. Like, I knew if I was facing Carlos Zambrano, he was just one of the nastiest guys. I could just look at him or, you know, like wink at him in the batter's box or whatever. And I had him from that point on because he would get so mad that he would just lose control of everything he was doing, right? Because he couldn't handle it. And there were certain people that, you know, that, that just you, could, you couldn't get under – you couldn't bother him, right? And that was – those are the guys that drove me crazy because the guys you could bother were, they were great. Cause you were like, I can do whatever I want to this guy and I can have this guy's number right away. But it was the guys that kind of just, I don't know. I don't want to say ignored you, but just kind of were like, eh, whatever. And laughed kind of like what you were talking about. Those are the guys you're like, gosh, why can I, what, what can I do to, and those are the guys that beat me up. Cause I'm like, how can I not, how can I not get under this guy's skin or how can I not make this guy angry? Right. Cause once, once you get another guy angry on another team, it's over for them because I knew how to deal with it. I knew how to handle it. Most guys don't because they just don't play like that. So uh, it, it, it became, I don't want to say fun, but it became almost like, I don't know about a game to me, but it was a, it was something I knew I could do and I could turn on and off. And, and also at the end of my career, when I, in my last year, when I couldn't get up for the games anymore, meaning like I couldn't manufacture that, let's go, let's go, let's go kind of fake bravado that's what i knew like all right i'm done i've had enough and it's time to go home <laughs> i can't pull it off anymore i gotta i gotta go off from the sunset um well no i'm trying to be too nice i'm like i'm oh i'm trying to be a nice guy well, that doesn't work for me so uh, let's go home let's go home my edge is gone um exactly out of, out of high school you signed a letter of intent with uh tennessee i figured you for a gator you gator fan well I mean, I'm sitting up in my kind of mink cave and I'm looking at all my Florida helmets signed by like Tebow, Urban Meyer, you know, a bunch of these guys. And yeah, I'm a Gator fan. I signed with Tennessee. I know we try not to talk about that in my family. Uh, I signed there because honestly, Florida didn't recruit me. They wouldn't recruit me out of high school. Uh, the coach, Joe Arnold, uh, was there forever. Johnny Damon, we already mentioned. There was Brian Barber before me and then another guy named Brian Costello. 
my high school. All three signed with Florida. All signed uh, professional contracts out of high school. And uh, Joe Arnold calls me and goes, you're the fourth one. I can't take a chance on you not signing or signing and not coming to Florida. And I said, you know, Joe, I'll come to Florida. I'll give you my word. He goes, not good enough for passing. And so I ended up signing with Tennessee, really with no intent of probably ever going there. But looking back on it, I mean, that team was pretty good. They had Todd Helton, Ari Dickey. Uh, they had a pretty good team that, when I would have been there. Okay. So when you signed, you, you kind of did what we all do is we go around and we take our, our – uh trips and, and we decide i i didn't know though my in my situation i'm like yeah i'm probably not going to be a high pick i'm probably going to go to usc you had an idea going into that draft uh that you were going to be a, a pretty high pick and you ended up going to the third round with the twins uh when you get the phone call you you still is is tennessee any leverage for you or, or you know as soon as you hear third round twins you know you're going to sign um, Tennessee was a little bit of leverage, but back then, I mean, it wasn't, the money wasn't what it is now and they don't do the, the predetermined draft pick or the predetermined money before you even get, I mean, these kids you talk to now, they know a week ahead of time, these teams call them and say, Hey, will you sign for 550,000? If they say no, they move on to the next guy. And, um, so I used it a little bit. Um, but it was really not a lot of negotiation. I mean, I think I signed for, I want to say 150,000, which, you know, at the time I thought I had all the money in the world. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there on a, the old brick, brick portable phone that you had, everyone had at their house in the nineties and get the phone call. There was no internet. So there wasn't like you could watch the draft live. It literally was, you get a phone call. They say, Hey, this is the GM of the twins. We drafted you here. And, uh, our scout will be in touch to see if you want to sign. And that was it. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Uh, and then the scout came in and, we talked a couple of times, kind of went back and forth. And I said, if you give me this money, I'll sign. And boom, uh, I was done. And I was in Fort Myers in like two days. So it was, it was a very quick process. How was it for you going from, going from varsity baseball, 25, 30 games a year. Now all of a sudden, I think the minor league schedule was what? one one forty two. Was that, was that a, a big challenge for you? I, I like to ask that to the guys that sign out of high school and the, versus the guys that sign out of college and, and the different stories are here. How was it for you, that transition? It, you know what? Honestly, it wasn't a big deal for me because the high school I went to, Dr. Phillips, we played every day and we played year-round. So, like, I, I didn't play – after my uh, freshman year of high school, I didn't play any other sports. So, it was just baseball. We played fall, spring, summer. You know, we played 100 – 100, over 100 games a year in high school. So it wasn't like, oh, wow, this is such a big deal. How am I ever going to play this many games? Now, when I got to Gulf Coast League my first year, these kids from up north were dying, I mean, down in Fort Myers because they came from where it was 80 degrees. It's 120 in Fort Myers with 4,000% humidity. They can't barely play three innings without needing, like, uh, a trainer to come make sure they're not going to pass out from heat stroke. Meanwhile, I was like, this is great. This is a normal day for me. So it wasn't – it wasn't really that big of a deal for me. And, and, and we already talked about this, but I knew I wanted to play baseball. So I was like, yeah, oh, there's another game tomorrow. Great. Oh, and another game tomorrow. And the next day and the next, I'm like, let's go. Like, I could do this all the time. And, and I think that's kind of – it was. that's why it wasn't a huge deal because I was like, yeah, I want to play. Oh, I can play tomorrow? Yes. Can I play the next day? Yes. And, and I wanted to play, and it was every day. So I was like, yeah, let's go do this. Couple of your teammates, Big Poppy was a teammate of yours in the minor leagues. Jock Jones, an SC Trojan, was uh, I believe a teammate of yours coming up. 
you're in the minor leagues. You, you get you get your call in 1998. You only get 10 ABs, but you get your feet wet, you know, like most of us do that first call up. Uh, 99, same thing, 22 ABs. In 2000, you kind of you get 88 ABs, you hit 307, and, and that's when you're going to start being the everyday catcher. Uh, how was that for you in that 98, 99, and then going back down to the minor leagues? Well, there's there's some things that people don't. Well, 98, I get called up. I, you know, I was 21 years old, right? Like I was king of the world. You get called up to the major leagues. You're 21 years old. You're like, oh, I got this all figured out, right? You know, I think I was like three for 10. You know, you get to you get to go to all these cool places, like you know, you go to old Tiger Stadium, and you, my first game was in Anaheim. My first day in the big leagues was in Anaheim, the day Mark McGuire broke the home run record. So that was kind of pretty memorable day, right, in baseball history. Uh, we, we were taking BP. They stopped it so we could all watch it on the jumbotron out there at the Big A. So uh, you're like, oh, I'm on king. I'm the king of the world. I'm 21 years old. You know, I'm making in two weeks in the big leagues. I made more than I made my whole career combined. So I'm like, oh, I'm so rich. And you kind of go into the off season. You're thinking, all right, you know, this is my chance. And then the next year, you go to spring training and it's sent down again, whatever. And then you kind of bounce. I bounced up and down and. Uh, ended up, I broke my handmade, so I missed. I didn't get a September call up. So then I go to spring training 2000, and I get sent down first first cut. And I'm like, well, what the basically like, what the hell happened? Like, and they're like, you know, you need to work on this and this. And I'm like, okay. And they send me to, they don't even send me to triple A. They send me to double A. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. Like, what, what's happening? And uh, spent you know about eight weeks, I guess, in double A. About eight weeks in triple A. Uh, they, then they call me up and, uh, when I got back up, it was like a difference. I don't, I, it was like a different, I don't know. It was a different mindset. I was like, I'm sick of going up and down. I don't want to, I don't want to go back down to that other place again. And, uh, I, I kind of got off to a little bit of a slow start. And then I, I remember we faced Steve Sparks, the knuckleballer for the, he was with the Tigers, I think. And I got four hits and I was like, okay, I can do this. Uh, and then I went to Seattle. I don't know if you were even Seattle in 99 yet or not. No, I was still uh, 99. I was in uh, Atlanta. I mean, 2000. Sorry, 2000. My bad. No, 2000, I got to Seattle back in, in uh, 01. Okay, because 2000, we go to Seattle. A kid I had come up with uh, won his first game, and I hit my first home run. Then I was like, okay, now we can kind of do this, right? It was like, a, whoa, I, I can I can play at this level. Uh, and then I just kind of stuck from there and went on to play for, you know, whatever, 16 more years. But you know, it was it was the best thing that ever happened to me at the time. It was the worst thing is when I got sent back to Double A because it kind of reset my mindset. And you're like, okay, maybe I'm not that good, and I need to start start basically over from where I was at. And uh, it ended up working out great for me. And I'm appreciative of the Twins at the time. I wanted to, you know, kill every front office person from here to Minneapolis. But uh, at the end, it, it was the right decision. Tom Kelly, Tom Kelly was your skipper. Um... <laughs> yes, he was. Give me a Tom Kelly story. I didn't okay, know Tom. So my- you know, I just knew he was kind of the legendary manager. He was there when I, you know, I played against him for a few years before he retired. Give me a little Tom Kelly. Well, so Tom Kelly was legendary, obviously, Twins, like you said. He won two World Series. Uh, you know, 98, 99, don't really, you know, I'm around, but not really around. 2000, I get up, and he didn't, he didn't really like young guys. He didn't really like young guys at the time. So it was kind of like, oh, you're young. He doesn't even – it's like you weren't even there. Wasn't even in, you weren't even in the room, right, like in the locker room, anywhere. So 2000, 2001, I make the team. He's never even said a word to me other than to tell me how bad I suck or, uh, you know, one time he pinched <laughs> it for me. 
How about this? How, what would you have done if you did this? So I'm. A, it's like the fifth inning. We're playing the mayor. I think we're playing you guys. It was 2001, I believe. You guys were the best team I've ever seen. And he, you guys, I think Paul Abbott started the game. You guys brought in a lefty out of the bullpen. It was like the fifth inning. They changed pitchers. I'm still up. Wait till I get on into the batter's box, call timeout, and then pitch hits for me as I'm in the batter's box. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm could have just let me hit. It's only the fifth inning. But he's like, no, son, come on back. Come on, sit, sit back next to me. And I'm like, it's the fifth inning. Like, you, you could have, couldn't have changed hitters when they were changing pitchers. You know, but that was just TK, the way he did it. And, and I think I went to about June or July without him still ever having a conversation with me. He comes up to me, and I'm sitting in my locker, and he just looks at me and goes, hey, are you going to play fantasy football this year? And I'm like, me? You talking to me? And he's like, hey, how are you? Are you going to play fantasy football? He's like, not really, you know, I'm not really into it, but all this team is, and they're all talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, I think I am. And he goes, great. I can't wait to see you at the draft. I hope you have a good year. And he turned and walked away, and I ne- I'll never forget, I, like, called my wife after, and I'm like, Tom Kelly just had a conversation with me like a normal human being. I think I'm going to be okay in this game. And, and she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's the first time he's ever spoke to me without, like, telling me how bad I suck or that I'm doing something wrong in the baseball field. So I'm like, I think I might be okay now. It was like, oh, what just happened? No, it, it, it's a cool moment, though, and it's important for us players. I, I'll guarantee you that was important for you. Like, all right, finally he's accepted me as his catcher. I went through a similar thing with Lou Pinello when I was coming up in 1993. This dude, I mean, me and him would go round and round in the office. And he'd, you know, he I'd come back from an at-bat, and he'd say in front of the whole team, son, what are you swinging at? And I'd throw the bat at him, not at him, but, you know, like shove it in the corner. Hey, Lou, you forget how hard it was? You go hit it. And he'd send me down and he'd bring me up. And, and I had a similar kind of coming out party with him. It was the end of 93. He had let me play finally. And I was starting to get some traction. And we were in Milwaukee. And Panella calls me into the office and he goes, hey, Boone, he goes, you bet football? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I threw out a bet here and there. He goes, all right, me and you, every week, we're going to have our picks, whatever the denomination was. And he goes, uh, and we'll check, see whoever did better the course of the weekend. Uh, it's 50 bucks, let's call it. And I walked out of that, that uh, his locker, and I went, the skip, like, he's engaging with me. Like I'm a big leaguer now. That's what, that's what it made me feel like. Then we went to Minnesota last spring, uh, the last series of the year. And I remember he took me out and we were out of it, took me out in the sixth inning. Let me go shower with Griffey and Jay Buner. I took that shower and I thought, I'm a big leaguer. He took me out of the game because, you know, when we're in the when we're in big league camp, we're caddying for whoever the starter is. So we come in late in the game and all of a sudden somebody was caddying for me. But it's little things like that. It's cool. So I hear your story about Tom Kelly and, and I can relate to it because it's it's kind of a moment like, all right, now I belong. And that was probably a, a, that moment for you. Well, you said you went and called your wife. Yeah, because I was shocked. I'm like, I can't believe I'm out. Yeah. It was exactly what you said. It was the moment where you're like, okay, I'm a major leaguer now because Tom Kelly, who doesn't say, any, doesn't say anything to anybody, actually had a normal human being conversation with me. I'm like, okay, we're good now. I can calm down. 2002, you're an all-star. You hit 300. 2003, you hit 312. And uh, that's when I got to know you a little bit. Uh, 
Nike trips throughout the years. And I'm sure you hear it all the time when you say, oh, yeah, we used to do that on the Nike trip. Everybody wants to know what the hell is a Nike trip? And, and you got to sit down and explain it to, well, this is what happens. Nike would invite, you know, a few teams. You remember your first Nike trip? I do. It was uh, Hawaii, uh, Kona. Uh, they stayed at the Manalani. I remember uh, distinctly, uh, yeah, I was scared to death because I walked out and I saw the list of people that were coming and it was like you and Roy Holiday, Mike Cameron, uh, Richie, I think, was on that trip. Yep, sexy. Uh, I mean, geez, I was like, how did I get invited into this trip? And uh, it was one of the best times. I, I mean, I ended up going on that thing for like 13 or 14 times. And it was like, I look forward to it now. I think my wife got a little tired of it after about the 10th time we went. Uh, you know, me going out playing golf, coming home drunk, and then, you know, going to dinner and getting drunker and then usually doing something really stupid. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, – it was it, it was really fun because I got to get I got to get to know so many guys right I remember Brian Giles you remember the, I'm, you, I don't know if we can tell that story I uh, yeah we, I don't know well you can, you can tell well go ahead and tell it but just use your discretion yeah. throw a little PG thirteen in but it, it's a great you know, story when, when we had to all do karaoke on that stage and you have like the head guy of Nike and you got Brian Giles up on the stage and he takes his girlfriend at the time's thong and puts it on and they he karaoke's the thong song and nothing but a thong on the stage. And then his girlfriend ended up falling off the back of the stage, I think, because she was so intoxicated and hurting her head. But, uh, you know, just little things like that. And then I will say this, though. Once you and, like, Nev, Bill Nevin, and, and Richie stopped going, you guys had, had moved on, it definitely got a lot calmer than uh, the days of you jumping into the – betting us 100 bucks, you wouldn't get the, 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 the guy in Mexico's hat and his rake and – Swim out to the buoy in the middle of the round of golf. I mean, it definitely calmed down after that. Yeah, those were some fun times. That that, that Nike trip, we'd all show up, and you get all your Nike attire, and then it was kind of carte blanche. It's like you're at this resort, and uh, just put everything on the room, and at the end of the trip, everything's free. But that was a lot of fun, and and Bill Frechette, who who ran the show, he was he gave us the comedy relief in the evening, and and uh, it it was it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of fond memories, a lot of a lot of buddies and and friends I made there. That's where I got to know AJ, and that's where I had to come back, and and your facade wasn't working uh, because teammates of mine, <laughs> you know, they'd give me the old oh Przinsky, I go actually you'd like him. Oh, I, I hate that guy. I said, yeah, actually, you'd like him, though. It's more of a shtick. You know, my Boone highlights and, you know, this and that. I said, it's kind of like that. Only he, he does it on the twins. Uh, we told him, wait, before, hold on, speaking of your highlights, have you ever discussed the commercial you had back in the day with Seattle, the one where you flipped everything? You were doing the bat flip with, like, the rake and all that? <laughs> yes, I did. I, I see it all the time. My that kids, was like the greatest, to this day, yeah, give me a hard like time about Seattle. it. Dude, that was like the greatest Seattle Mariners. Com- I mean, they have great commercials in Seattle. But like that was like one of the first ones that like hit when you guys were. Went, you literally won every day. And I tell the yes. story when in '01 we go to Seattle and we were fighting for a playoff spot. And you know, most teams put like A's up on the little in the score or on the like the little side of the stadium. You guys had brooms for how many teams you had swept during the year. And I'm like, we don't want to get up on that list, guys. We, we were young guys, and we were scared to death, and we go into Safeco right when it opened. You guys kicked our ass, I think, for three games, and we're like, yeah, that's the best team I've ever seen. I mean, it didn't matter. We'd be up like 4 or 5 nothing, and then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. 
we're like, oh my gosh, we're down six to five and in the like nothing. And then it came in Rhodes and, and it's Zaki and all those guys. And I was like, oh, yeah, we got no chance. Yeah, that was that was one of those just once in a lifetime, you know, you'll never go through it again seasons where just, you know, we had a really good team and it just seemed like all the guys kind of came together and had that that career year all at the same time. And, and then on top of it, we had this. I don't. I can't even explain it. You had to be there. I mean, you you just mentioned we were you were down by four and you'd still lose. It's like we knew we we were down four in the sixth inning and and we'd look at each other in the dugout and everybody kind of would just without talking, just kind of give you the eyes like you know we're going to come back and win this game right because that's what we do, and and it seemed like more times than not we come out of nowhere and and then just look at each other after the game as we're shaking hands on the field yeah yeah. Of course, we came back from four in the seventh with two outs. That's what we do. And, and it was just one of those magical years that, you know, I never went through before and I never went through after. But it, it was a it was a pretty fun ride. Uh, after the 03 season, you get traded to the Giants. You make a make a stop there. You're playing for another guy, Felipe Alou. You're only there for one year. You have a pretty good year. 272, 77 ribbies. And then as a free agent, you sign with the White Sox. And uh, going into the 05 season and uh, pretty awesome season, uh, you end up winning the World Series. And, and I think it's the first time that, that Chicago uh, on either side have seen a World Series champion since 1917. Uh, you end up beating, beating uh, Houston, going through, going through, through Boston. Uh, give me a little bit. Take me through that 05 season, and uh, it must have been unbelievable. It must have been unbelievable. That city, I couldn't imagine winning winning the World oh. Series. I saw I saw recently when the Cubs did it, and the Cubs were you know they they'd had a longer drought than than the White Sox has had had had. But watching that city, it had to be unbelievable. Well, yeah. First of all, it was it was incredible. But I mean, I remember coming up with the Twins, signing with the White Sox was like the weirdest thing of all time, right? Uh, you, you basically as a twin and with the unbalanced schedule, the way it was, you played all these teams. I mean, we did not like the White Sox at all. Like they were, I know the Indians and the other Royals and the other teams in that division, but at the, at the end of the day, it, the White Sox and the twins hated each other back then. There was a lot of trash talking back and forth. So for me to walk into that locker room was like, oh boy, what have I done? Uh, but it ended up being unbelievable. I mean, we went wire to wire. We were first place from the first day of the year to the last day of the year. Uh, in the season you guys had in 01, imagine having that year where kind of everything goes right, but then you pop it off with the World Series in a city. Like, if you guys would have won that year in 01 in Seattle, like, imagine the energy, the excitement that they had. Well, I think in Chicago, baseball, 88 years, longer drought than the Red Sox, won the year before. We beat the Red Sox, beat the Angels, beat the Astros. And just the amount of, of of love you feel, the amount of excitement you feel. I mean, honestly, I wish – I tell people this all the time, and, and nobody really believes me. I'm like, I wish I could have been outside looking in, because when you're in it, you don't really get to appreciate what you have and how fun it could have been. Not that it wasn't unbelievable, but there's so many things where you, I look back and I'm like, and I, like, forgot that happened or I forgot that moment. Uh, or if I got that game, because you, you, every once in a while, like MLB Network will run like seasons and they'll have that year on. I'll watch it and I'll be like, oh, I forgot that play happened or that or craziness. And and I wish you could do it again. But to, to win in that city after not having done it, especially on the White Sox, they were just treated like 
the stepchild of the Cubs and to do it first, it was something that is is indescribable and just one of the best moments. The best moment you can have as a baseball player, as a team. Not, I mean, individually. I mean, it is what it is. But as a team and as a unit, it's the best feeling in the world. How was that parade? Unbelievable. Oh, uh-huh. it was freezing. First of all, uh, but I mean, you know, there was two million people lined up on the streets, and, and it went forever. We were on Oprah before. Before the parade, they had us go on Oprah, which was pretty crazy that was when oprah winfrey was like the biggest thing so we were we're like oh she wants us to come on oprah so a bunch of us went on oprah and we did that parade i don't think i had slept for like 72 hours before the parade and then we get to the there's people like hanging out of the balconies and on these light poles and i'm like someone's gonna die and then we get to the the stop just south of the river on the south side and steve perry shows up we sing journey in front of i think they said there was like two million people there which i've never seen so many people in my life I mean, as far as you could see, it was just people lined up. So, uh, listen, it, it's it's one of the craziest things, craziest moments. Jeez, uh, I mean, it just it was it was perfect. Uh, the only way I can describe it is everything was perfect. I remember that team. Big Frank was on that team. Uh, Jermaine Die Canerco. Uh, yeah, a quiet assassin, and, and this guy—I don't know if he—he—he he, he ever gets enough credit. But you—you you caught him for a while, uh, Burley. Man, he was good. I'd come to Chicago, and everybody kind of take him like you know. There was nothing fancy about him. He'd, he'd catch it and throw it. But I'll tell you, he was good. And and on that team was was uh, one of my favorites, Big Fred, Freddie Garcia, who, oh. who on. On that 0-1 team, Freddie was our ace. So it was cool seeing Freddie uh, getting to get a ring. It, it was it was Freddie the best. I still can't understand what he says to me when, when we have a conversation. Uh, there's no one like all, Big Fred. There's nobody. You know, I'm sure people ask you this all the time, like, who's the best this or best that or, you know, the hardest guy you ever had to face or the best pitcher you faced or – or whatever, who's the guy you, you killed or what, you know, it was all the, you, know, you get the same questions, right? People always ask me as a catcher, they're like, if you had to win one game, who's the guy you take? And I'm like, Freddie Garcia. And they're like, really? Cause you know, you, I caught Johan Santana and Burley and Radke and Jason Schmidt when he was doing his thing and, and you Darvish and, and, you know, a long list of guys that I caught that were really, really good. And I'm like, I'll take Freddie Garcia. And they're like, Really? And I'm like, that guy had balls the size of Florida. It was unbelievable. That guy wanted the ball in big games more than any guy I've ever seen, and he would perform like nobody I'd ever seen. Now, you put him in a, in a game in the middle of July that doesn't mean anything, he'll go out and give up eight. But you put him in a September game with everything on the line, he'll go out and throw seven shutout and not blink, no matter what his stuff is. It was unbelievable the stuff that guy had, and the size of his, his courage and his balls were unbelievable. Freddie was um, he was awesome. You're right. I mean, he wasn't. If Freddie got beat, it it wasn't because he was scared. You know, he's going to lay it on the line, and, and you know how he spoke that broken English. And I'd say, Freddie, what do we got today? Wow, it's shit, Boney. Da, 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 da. And then he'd go, "Hey, man, just throw two seamers." And man, I loved him. Mike, right? He'd be huh? on the bus, Mike. Always, he'd, he'd be on yeah. the mic on the bus. And it would oh be yeah, like, yeah. Uh, uh, Okay, guys, uh, uh, come to the front of the bus. Come to the front of the bus. He'd call, like, some young kid up, and he'd make him do some, you know, sing a song or whatever. He'd ask him questions, and it was just the best. I mean, it was like you said, he was broken English, and 
and and just had the time of his I mean, he was like the best teammate, the best. I mean, we had a ton of them, but before, I, I got to ask you something because you're talking about Canerco, and Canerco always tells this story about you, and I want to, I, I need verification from you if it's true or not. He got traded to Cincinnati. You were playing yes, second. He got we were, team, for, we were for teammates Shaw. for a minute. Go ahead. So he said, he said he's playing first. There's a pop-up that goes kind of behind first, and he's calling it. And he hears you call him off. And he gets out of the way, and you catch it. And he said, as you're running off the field, you look at him, you say, hey, Pauly, I get all those. You know why? That's how I win gold gloves. It helps my fielding percentage. So get out of the way. Those are all mine the rest of the way. He's like, yes, sir, and ran <laughs> off the field with it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to deny that. That's exactly something I would say because Paulie, yeah, he came over when he got traded from the Dodgers, I think, right to the Reds. Yes. And then Paul, and then uh, Casey came to Cincinnati, and then Paulie went off, and the rest is history. You know, he hits 400 plus home runs, but yeah, I do remember that, and that's something I would definitely say to my first baseman is get out of the way. There's a reason I'm playing second. You're playing first. I got all the plays over here. So, yes, that's <laughs> I, I can. I definitely cannot deny that. Uh, Ozzie Guillen. I played with Ozzie. I played with Ozzie in, in Atlanta in 1999. He was the <laughs> he was he was Walt Weiss's backup. But uh, this is funny. It, it, he says he says on the podium, and I'm sure this is the first time you've heard this, that you hate you hate. Canerco when he's on the other team and when he's on your team, you hate him a little bit less. That is pretty good. Yeah, that's Ozzy though. Listen, I, that quote has gotten so much play from Ozzy. Uh, you know, he still uses that quote about me. So, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And it, again, that kind of goes into the persona, right? And Ozzy helped build that up into bigger than bigger than life. Uh, but I'll say this about Ozzy. And the reason Ozzy and I got along and we still get along, he put me in the lineup every day. I, I never had to come in and worry about not playing. He was like, you're my catcher. You're going to play every day that you can play, and I'll throw you out there. Even when you don't want to play, he's like, I'm throwing you out there. And he he was, he was, always had my back, and he always knew that I was going to show up and give him everything I had. And I think that's the one thing Ozzy and I had in common was that I just he just knew I was going to show up and play. And he never had to quit. It didn't matter. Like Whatever happened, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, of course I'm okay. Let's go tomorrow. And he just put me out there. And I think that's why we got along. Now, listen. Were there times with Ozzy where you're like, gosh, this guy just stopped talking? Of course. But, I mean, that's every manager. I'm sure you had that with Lou when you played for Lou, right? Like, you would say something, you come in, and you're like, oh, boy, what did Lou say today? Well, I was like, oh, what did Ozzy say today? And you had to be kind of ready for it. But uh, he, he was good. He did distract the media from the players sometimes. He also became a bigger, bigger distraction at times because he would say things and the players would have to explain it because, you know, Ozzy – would slam the door in their face and they would laugh and come to the players. But listen, he was good for me. I played seven years for the man. We had a great relationship. We still have a great relationship. Uh, you know, and it's a shame kind of the way he left Chicago and the way his managerial career ended. But, you know, he's on TV now and he can say whatever he wants. And, and at the end of the day, baseball is better with Ozzie Guillen in it. Oh, six, you're an all star for the second time. And tell me about the fight with Barrett. I got to hear it. I got to <laughs> well, hear it. Yeah, it was just one of those things that happened. We were friends. We had known each other since high school. Uh, and we had worked out together. We had hit and done some stuff together. And he, uh, I don't know, like what happened? He, I don't know if he had a, a, a bad day or, you know, someone, you know, the wrong coffee or someone, the wrong Cheerios or what. But 
we had just won. We had just won. You know, there was all these quotes from the Cubs about, you know, it's our town. We got to take it back. You know, and and I hit him. It was a clean play. And I get up. My helmet was behind him. People don't realize I was going to get my helmet. And he just grabs me and goes, I didn't have the ball, bitch. And he kind of, everyone's like, oh, he got sucker punched. Yeah, I mean, but it wasn't really a punch. It was more of like a push. By the time I realized what happened, uh, Scott Pasednik had him on the ground, you know, and I had like four guys on top of him. And then, uh, you know, it was just one of those moments. And I can't even do a game hardly at all. Like if I do a Cubs or a White Sox game on TV, they show that play every time, right? It's like a moment that everybody remembers from that the Cubs-White Sox series. And and great. I mean, uh, I've had teammates that have been in fights or whatever, and they're like, I don't want to ever see that. Dude, whatever. It's part of our life. It's part of it. And I've seen him since, and, and, and it is what it is. I mean, we're not best friends, but I'll say hello to him. Uh, but listen, I mean, it was it's a moment that will be shown for the rest of eternity whenever the Cubs play the White Sox. So, yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. It is amazing that there's not more, too, because I've, I've gotten pretty good shot. Back when you could run over a catcher, which you should, you should still be able to, part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had some pretty good shots and I always would wonder the harder I hit you like that's gotta, you know, it's your job. You know what the rules are. It's a clean hit, but when you get hit hard and you get a good shot taken on you, I mean, just the adrenaline, it could be, like you said, something's not going good. You're in a slump. Your team's not winning. The team you're playing's beating the snot Eddie. Any of those things could just rub you the wrong way at the time. So I, I took it as that. I took it as there was no hard, hard feelings going in. It was a clean hit. That's that's the way we do it. That's the way we're taught to do it. You know, it's not uh, the times that I got into a collision at home plate. It's not because I wanted to knock this guy out. It's because he's got the ball, and my job is to score a run. And if I can dislodge it, great. If not, if he holds on, he's doing his job even more. I'm not here to hurt you. But, uh, yeah, it, it looked to me like that was just – it's all it was. It's your job is to get to home plate. The rules are we can run over the catcher. You did it. He took offense to it. You know, he probably thought it through and, and looked at it and said, well, that was him overreacting. But we always do that. That's, that's the emotion of the game that you really – you can't predict in the heat of the moment. Um, well, I, I got ejected for uh, exciting the crowd that day, which was amazing. See, that persona is just following you everywhere. It's following you everywhere. But – Speaking of that year, uh, I, I was hoping you were going to ask me about stepping on your brother's back. I don't know if you've ever heard that story. No, I haven't heard it. That's what we were here at the Boone Podcast. Story? We like to well at the Boone Podcast. There's not too many Boone stories. I let the guests tell, but if you got some, we need to hear them. So, so your brother was playing third for the Indians. I think it was. It might have been oh five. It was either oh five or oh six. Your brother's playing third for the Indians. I'm on second. There's a fly ball to right. It was like second and third. I'm on second. There's a fly ball to the right fielder. He throws it home. First baseman cuts it. He throws it away. Third. So I, I'm going to score. Your brother had dove for the ball. And as I'm going by, I have to jump over him. Well, he starts to get up. So I just put my foot right on his back. And he goes right back down. And then I end up scoring a run. And like everybody was like, why'd you do that? And I was like, well, if he would have got up, I would have tripped. So I just kind of put my, and it's really hard to find video of it. You have to really search on the internet for it. Still, every time I see your brother, he's like, my back is still kind of sore from where you uh, put your spikes in my back. So next time you talk to him, ask him about the time when I stepped on his back and he had like a footprint on his back, like right, but I think he was 17, like right between the one and the seven. 
how was it? Was he pissed? Or was it one of those things he realized what you're trying to do and it he, just happened? He, he was kind of like, he wasn't, because we still talk about it. He just laughs about it. He's like, we just one of the, it, it, what's funny is the next year we played them opening day and he smashed me at home plate. Like there was a play at the plate and I didn't really have the ball yet. I mean, he just unloaded on me. He's like, and we just kind of looked at each other and laughed and I go, we're even now. And he's like, yeah, we're even now. That was both clean. It's good. And, uh, <laughs> it was part of it, but I was like, yeah, uh, so he, I mean, he crushed me at home plate and whatever. It wasn't dirty hit. And I remember my glove went flying, my mask went flying. I was like, Oh, that was a good one. And then we kind of looked at each other and I'm like, we're good now. He's like, yeah, we're even now. I'm like, okay. Cool. You know, and every time I see your brother, he always laughs. He's like, gosh, I'm still sore on my back from when you stepped on me. So uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a Boone family story. They're flying. We got them all over the place. Uh, 07, 263, 1408. You 281-13-60. And you caught your first no-no. My guy, the guy underrated. And, and oh, yeah. I'll tell you, as a right-handed hitter, it doesn't matter who's unless it's Randy Johnson, maybe or maybe for me a Tom Glavin. If I'm scuffling, the the only thing I don't want to see is a good right-handed pitcher. I'll take any lefty on the planet, with the exception of a couple. I'd come to Chicago. I'd always think, all right, we got Burley. Oh, good, he's a lefty. You know that'll be an easy day for me. And it was never an easy day. Anyway, you catches no hitter in 08. Uh, what's that like? Uh, it was unbelievable because it was the first no hitter I'd ever caught. It's really the first time I'd ever gotten deep into a no hitter. Um, and he threw it in. It was like, I, I mean, it was like crazy because he went 27 up, 27 down. He walked Sammy Sosa, picked him off before he threw another pitch. Uh, and then the rest, he just cruised. There was never even a ball that was like, I felt like was even close to being a hit. He just cruised through the whole thing and, I mean, he, oh, he's the best. I mean, he works so fast. He, he threw cutters in, change-ups away. Uh, you know, he got people to speed up because uh, of the way how fast he threw the ball. And if he just caught you on the right day, man, he could just carve you up. And you know, he's throwing 85 maybe. And he, this guy's – the team, the guys struggled with him. The teams I found that were good against him either said, all right, we're going to just look cutter in and we're just going to turn on everything – or we're going to look change up and in the ball away and just shoot them to right. And, and but most teams couldn't stick with that plan. But the teams when they had when he had a bad day, for the teams that just kind of picked one side of the plate and eliminated the other and said, "All right, we're just going to live with it." And those are the teams that would get him. But, but most of the time, teams did not get him. Uh, jump forward to '09. You hit 300 again. 270 and 10, 287. In 12, you have a huge year. You hit 27 jacks. And that that comes at a time, your second no-hitter, but this time it's a perfect game. I've been a part of one. Chris Bazio, uh, the Mariners, when I first came to the big leagues, pitched one. It was pretty awesome to be a part of. Um, what are you thinking? I know what I was thinking in, in, during the no-hitter. I'm just, all right, just make your plays, Brett. Make your play. And if you miss one, make it look like an error. I mean, make it look like a base hit. But it kind of gets tense. You'd been in one no-hitter. Now you got a perfect game with – who was it? Was it uh, Humber? No Humber. Was it, 
Bill Humber yeah. was the guy's name. As a catcher, okay, and tell the people out there listening, it gets to the sixth, seventh inning. You've already pitched. You've already been a part of a no-no with with Burley. This guy's got a perfect game going to the seventh. As a catcher, you staying away from your pitcher. You still talking. You pretending like nothing else is going on. We're still going with our game plan and and just go about your conversations like it normally would be if he's he's pitching a three hitter in the seventh. No, I didn't talk to him at all. Nobody talked to him. It was it was really weird. It was eerie, right? Because okay, so you have to remember now. Burley threw his no hitter, and he threw his no hitter. He didn't care, right? He was like, ah, whatever. I don't care. I'm throwing a no hitter. No, like he would talk about it, right? Burley threw a no hitter. I think at two or a perfect game in 2010, maybe. I didn't catch that day. I was on the bench, right? Because it was against Tampa. There was a Casimir uh, lefty was starting, so it's a day game after a night game. So I was like, yeah, you get the day off, and. So I didn't catch that day. And the, the, the greatest story of all time that people say there's no way this happened, Early and I had lockers next to each other for our time in Chicago. And he comes in, he's late, and he's all bitter, and he's like, ah, the traffic sucked. And I'm like, so what? He's like, I didn't get to get my energy drink, and I didn't do this. I go, dude, shut up. I'm tired. I don't want to hear you complain. And he's like, oh, you're not playing, are you? And I'm like, no. He goes, that's why you're so mad. I go, dude, just shut up and go out and throw a no-hitter. And he goes, I already got one of those. And I go, dude, shut up and go throw a perfect game. He goes, you know what? I'm going to throw a perfect game today. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right, right. So he goes out there and he's like, three up, three down, three up, three down, three up, three down. And now he comes in every inning. He's like, I'm going to throw a perfect game. And you ain't catching, I'm, like, dancing in front of me between innings. He's like, and the best part is you can't come out on the bench because you've been sitting in here every inning. So you're going to have to stay in here while I throw a perfect game. I'm like, fine, it's air conditioning. You ain't going to do it. And he's like, watch me, watch me. Every inning, this goes on. He gets to the ninth, right? Dwayne Wise makes that incredible catch to save it, I think, in the eighth. He gets to the ninth. I'm like, well, I ain't staying in here now. I got to go out there. So I go out there, sit on the bench. And he does it. And you know, I'm like the first one out there to meet him, you know. And he, it, it was incredible. Like, there was no, like, superstition, no, like, don't say no hitter, don't say perfect game. He's, he's talking about it every inning with me. And he goes out and does it. So then we get to Hummers. And, and nobody would go near him because Burley had go, had gone on to the Marlins. He'd signed a free agent deal, but he wasn't on the team. So everybody's like scared to death to go anywhere near him. And, and as a catcher, I'm just thinking, don't screw this up. Like, don't put the wrong finger down. Don't screw this up. Like, all the game, do what you're supposed to do. You know the game plan. And, and once we got to about the, I think it was the eighth inning, he was just in such control. That it was like, you just kind of, it was like the feeling of, okay, this is going to happen. And then you get to the ninth inning, and he hadn't even come close. And he goes like 3-0, I think, on Justin Smoke. And then he goes, heater, heater, slider, sit down. Three, then he gets the next quick out, and then Brendan Ryan's the last out. He gets a 3-2, and I call slider, and he shakes. Heater, and he fouls it off. And I'm like, okay, slider, he, sh- he, he shakes. Heater, he fouls it off. And I'm like, all right, slider, he throws it. And it was like a check swing, big controversy. And I missed the dang ball. Like, it was like three foot outside. I missed it. I had to go chase it and throw it out, but Brendan Ryan was too busy arguing with the umpire, so I throw it to first. And I'm so far by the Mariners' dugout in Safeco, the whole team's celebrating on the field, and I'm, like, standing there by myself, like, he just threw a perfect game, and usually, you know, the picture is the pitcher and the catcher hugging. Well, I'm, like, the last one on the pile because I'm over there, you know, saying hi to the Mariners, uh, over there saying hi to Dan Wilson, calling the Mariners game from the Mariners' dugout. <laughs> the rest of the team's out there celebrating. Wow. Unbelievable. So the the Humber was different, though. Oh, because I was in it and I was part of it, and, and, and yeah, Burley, like I said, was joking about it. Humber was like, it's serious. 
just focused and like nobody i mean nobody went within like five feet of him like from like the fifth inning on and and, and, and you know i thought i said that burley didn't come close to giving up a hit there wasn't even a ball hit halfway hard off Humber. it was like easiest 27 up 27 down i've ever seen in my life you got the ball you got any of the balls I don't. I have the only thing I have from that is uh, the White Sox took my mask and they bronzed it, so I have a mask, the mask with a picture of the celebration uh, that the White Sox bronzed for me. But I don't think I have a ball. I because the last ball Canerco got because I had to throw it to him because I missed the dang slider, so I almost screwed it up. But uh, I don't have a hot to. I probably should have got one of them, but yeah, whatever. When's the last time you talked to Polly? Oh, uh, we texted uh, two days ago. I think we we shot some texts back and forth. He left. I gotta I gotta talk to Paulie. I haven't talked to him for. A while. I gotta get him on. I'm gonna get him on the podcast. I'm gonna get him on the show. He's huge, and he's. I saw, I saw him at the Field of Dreams. We sat behind each other. We sat next to each other at Field of Dreams in Iowa, uh, and you know, he's just coaching his kid, like uh, 12U baseball, 13U baseball. Can you imagine him as a Youth coach, I mean, the way he used to change his stance and his swing every about, I can't imagine him coaching kids, but uh, he seems to enjoy it. Uh, 2013, you go to Texas as a free agent. 14, you're in Boston and St. Louis. Uh, you go to the playoffs, and you end up getting beat by the Giants. Atlanta, you go to, to finish out your career in 2015, 2016. 2015, you hit 300 again for, I, I don't know, was that the fifth time in your career? And this is pretty impressive. 2016, uh, you get your 2,000th hit, only one of 10 guys. I mean, people don't realize that's a lot of hits for anybody, but especially for a catcher. I mean, that's a lot. There's a reason only 10 guys have done it. You got that ball? I do have that ball. I actually have the base, too. Uh, I have the base. It was at Fenway that gave me the base. Uh, I have the ball. Uh, but you know what's funny? People talk about that, but the thing I think I'm more, I got 400 doubles, which at the time I think I was only the fourth catcher to get 400 doubles. Uh, I think I'm more proud of that one than the two, uh, 2000. is cool because it's a big number, but the 400 doubles where there was only four catchers ever to do that, I think that one is, for me at least, is kind of cooler because – People don't know that one, right? Like that one is not as big as like, oh, 2,000 hit. But 400 doubles to me was, was kind of cool. And I did it against the White Sox in Chicago. And my family was there, so that was kind of a big deal. You played you, you played for such a, a long span of time. I And I don't really notice this in, in my career. You know, I came up in 1992. I was kind of done in 2007. Uh, and, and if you ask me, What's the biggest difference from 92 to, to 2007? I'd say, yeah, the players are kind of the same. It, it's a little different. Maybe maybe the stuff's starting to get a little bit better. The cutter had come into the game. You remember in the early 2000s, uh, there was a few lefties that had cutters. But then all of a sudden, everybody started having a cutter. You know, we had gone through the split finger fastball phase where, where everybody had a split. Now they were starting to throw the cutter. So, but I really wouldn't have a, a big answer for him. Like, Oh, the game has changed so much from my rookie year to the year I walked away. Cause it really hadn't. Now you came in at a different time than I did. What was it like from the, from your rookie year to the day you walked away? Did you notice a big change? Oh, did I? Cell phones? 
Well, besides cell phones. phones. Besides cell phones. I mean, let's start with cell phones. I mean, you can't not talk about cell phones. There was no... We first come up in 1998, I mean, barely cell phone, right? There definitely wasn't picture phones. There definitely wasn't, uh, you know, people texting. It was just, you know, you, you hung out. And, and the biggest thing for me as far as player-wise, guys were better when they came up, I felt like. Meaning because of the travel ball and the exposure they got, they were more used to the big stage. There was no travel ball when I was growing up. There was no, like, oh, let's – you know, have a perfect game tournament where you play kids from all over the country. You played in your little area, and then you went to the minor leagues or you went to college, and then you saw kids from other – but there's none of that stuff. And then for me, the last biggest thing, and I'm sure you would agree with it, like when I came up in 98 and early 2000s, guys would go hang out with each other. And at the end of my career, everybody would just go back to the room. They'd hang out with each other. They'd do it on video games, and they'd play video games against each other, and they would talk to each other. They'd be in their own room playing like Call of Duty, but they'd be on headsets talking to each other. But they were in separate rooms where we used to go down to the you know, the hotel bar, have a beer, hang out, talk about baseball. Guys would stay late in the clubhouse, talk baseball. There was none of that. Guys were on the first bus out, back to their room, jump on their Xbox or PlayStation and play video games, and that's how they would hang out with each other. There was no, uh, there was no like, hey, let's hang around and talk ball. Yeah, I, I noticed that has has definitely changed in the game. But I, you know, I wasn't there in the time you're talking about to see it. When I first came to the big leagues, early '90s, everybody—I mean, you had ten, fifteen guys hanging out after the game every game. You know, let alone when I was a kid growing up in my dad's generation. I mean, it was like a a team meeting with your uniform on till an hour after the game. I did notice, you know, starting to get into the late early the the late early two thousands, guys would kind of skid away a little bit more. But I do I do know what you're talking about. Guys coming to the big leagues uh, more prepared. You know, not the typical rookie. Uh, you know, kind of scared and trying to find their way. And, and I think that's why you see the stars that you see today. You see the guys like Acuna, you know, it kind of started with Harper and uh, Trout. You know, they were really young men coming to the big leagues. But now you look around and it's Tatis and Vladimir and, and Bichette and Acuna and Soto, you know, coming up just wise beyond their years, mature beyond their years. And I think, you know, like you said, it could be attributed to to – from an early age, them being kind of programmed. This is what you do. So when you get to the big leagues, it's not a big shock. You know, remember back in our day, Ken Griffey Jr. getting to the big leagues at 19 is like unbelievable. We've never seen anything like it. Now it seems like every year you got some hot shot 19 or 20 year old making his way to the big leagues and eventually going to become a star. Oh, I agree. And also not afraid. Um, I think, I don't know that I would say that I was afraid when I first came to the big leagues. You're also like when I first came up, Paul Molitor was on the team, right? And you wouldn't say you wouldn't say hello to Paul Molitor unless he came up to you. Where now these kids, they just act however they want. Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Like, oh, you know, these kids need to call. No, not at all. Like, I'm all for people being. Listen, I was the most emotional guy in the world. So, like, yeah, show your have fun. Go have go do whatever you need to do to have fun and make yourself better. But these guys aren't afraid, right? They're not afraid of the moment. They're definitely not afraid of showing guys up. Not that they're doing it. And I don't mean, I don't mean that like getting the bitter old man. Like they're just not afraid. They're like, okay, this is the game, same game I played since I was 10, 12 years old. I'm just doing it on a bigger stage with more people watching me. And I'm just going to play how I want to play. 
and, and there's not like I, I mean i'm sure you had when you first came up there was somebody that was like hey we don't do that here and they would call you over and they you know sit you down and say don't talk until you're spoken to right and they, that just yeah. doesn't happen anymore which is which is fine it's great it's helped the game grow and, and hopefully attract younger kids oh without a doubt when i came up it was like you said don't uh speak when you're spoken to you know i'd, I'd test them um I, i'd go to the back of the bus and sit down and, and and right away what the hell do you think you're doing come back you know they'd take my suits they'd cut them in half but then they next day they'd you know, they'd ring my phone because you're talking about the cell phone thing. They'd call my hotel room, Boone, get your butt up, meet us in the lobby in five minutes. They'd take me down the street and they'd buy me two new suits. So the veterans took care of me, but it, it, it's almost like back then they felt like it was their job to to teach you to be a big leaguer, to, to you know, give you a hard time, a lot of tough love until you proved you belong there. So you're right. The game has changed. And, and uh, in some ways, I, I really like that 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 kind of old school but i think the point you're making about guys are ready quicker now the bottom line is uh for my team it, let's say i'm a veteran on a team currently in 2022 i want that 22 year old kid coming to the big leagues the readier the better the more he can add to this team the better player he can be for us the better chance we have to win so so there's definitely points to be made on both sides of the ledger how to go about it no i agree listen the week especially the careers are, I feel like are shorter now. They're more condensed unless, other than the superstars. You need those young kids to come up and ball. You want them to be as, mo- as comfortable as they possibly can be. So yeah, whatever the veteran, like if I was playing now, I'd be like, listen, you guys do whatever you guys need to do to be ready to play tomorrow. Go out, you know, have as much fun, do whatever you got to do and, and just be ready to show up and, and do the right, you know, do the right things, play the game the right way. And I think most of them do that. So I think that's why you've seen a change. And plus organizations now, because the young kids are around more, it, it, it just be, it just has become part of it. Like I remember, you know, we, uh, Chris Sale comes up and, and Kenny Williams calls me in and goes, you know, you can't give this guy a hard time. We need this guy for the next 10 years. Okay, great. You know, and he was a great kid and, and you know, he didn't, he didn't get it, but you know, we came up and you were, you, I don't want to say haze, but you had to carry the beer bag or the stereo or yeah, they cut your suit or they make you dress up in a dress, whatever. It was all fun, right? It was it was not mean. It was just fun and part of it. And once they once you earned the guy's respect, then you know what they let you go, and you were you're free to do whatever you wanted to do. But yeah, it, it's I think in the grand scheme of things, I think it's a change for the better. I'll tell you what, AJ, I got hazed as, as bad as you could get hazed as a as a rookie. I did it. It didn't bother me. I would laugh it off. Actually, I should have been a little bit smarter and stopped doing it, and I wouldn't have got hazed as much. But it didn't bother me at all. Yet when I was a veteran. And they'd come to me and, 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 and Hayes may be too strong a word, but you know, we're going to, okay, we're going to dress the rookies up, do this and that. I really was never a part of it. I thought if you guys want to do that, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of something that's been passed down. It's what we do. I was never a part of it as a veteran. I had the mind, the mindset of these young kids are going to come to the big leagues. As long as they're respectful to the other players, bust their butt, play the game, right. I have, whether I give them a hard time or I don't, uh, it's not going to make or break. If they're good enough, they're going to be here and help us win. I want them to help us win. But I thought to myself, why do I have to do this to this kid on this trip where they're facing Pedro Martinez tonight? 
that guy's going to humble him better than I would ever humble him by making him wear a skirt on the plane. So that was my attitude was this game will humble you. I, as a veteran player, don't need to do it. I didn't mind other guys doing it, having fun with as long as everybody had fun with it. I, I, I never had a problem with it. But as a veteran, I was never one of those guys, the ringleader, dressing up the young kids or anything like that. Even though I had been, I just kind of let the game take to itself. And and these kids will weed, them, weed themselves out. You know, the, the great ones are going to be big leaguers for a long time. And the, and the like you said early in the broadcast, it, the, the guys that were fake, <laughs> they were going to be back in the minor league. So it didn't matter what Brett Boone did or didn't do to them. They, they were going to that that road was going to be traveled how, how they were going to travel it. Uh, you retire after 2016. A hell of a career. 2042 hits uh, 280 career. That's another thing people people uh, take for granted. Oh, 280. 280 is outstanding. You know, I, I had a few guys and you talked about Molitor. Molly came on and I said, Molly, do you know how unbelievable it is when you're you have as many at bats as you have, as many hits as you have. And you're like a 312 career. That means you hit you hit 312 every year for like 20 years. Guys are dying to hit 300 three or four times. But to do it as a career, it's awesome. 280. You mentioned the 400 doubles. Uh, this was interesting to me. 962 errorless chances in a row. You broke Yogi Bear's record. And also I wanted to get to, you also homered five games in a row, which I found pretty impressive. I don't think I ever did it more than maybe three. Take me through those two. Yeah. Tell me about the 962. <laughs> and then the I want to talk about these five games in a row going deep. Two two separate questions. Was, Go ahead. I was, so, I was so mad when that 962, I, I threw a ball away on a bunt. I was, like, devastated because I was like, that was the easiest play I've ever had. Uh, and I was terrible defensively. Not catching the ball, but I was terrible thrower when I was first got to the minor leagues. I threw so – I remember when I first I went to to Low A Fort Wayne. And I was there about a month before I got mono. I had like twelve errors in like twenty games or something crazy. It was like every throw went to center field, right? Uh, and I really worked hard to fix it. Uh, and, and so that was one of the things that I was most proud about. Is I would always try to see if I could make it a whole year without making an error. Which you know, as a catcher, you're like, oh, it shouldn't be that hard. Well, there's a lot of you make a lot of throws as a catcher, whether your guy's stealing. Uh, whether you're trying to pick a guy off, and there's a lot of pop-ups, and I sucked at pop-ups. So that was always like my goal. I, you know, I keep it under – I have one or two – you know, keep it at least under two errors a, a year. And it was easier said than done. Uh, that was one of the things I was most proud about. And then the five homers, it was in 2012, uh, and, and I made a little swing change. And it started in spring training. I was hitting more home runs in spring training, and we had just gotten Adam done. And Ben and I were talking about it, and – uh, I, I actually sat out like three games. I had like a sore oblique, and I never had any problems in my life. And I come back, and we're playing Minnesota, and I hit a home run. First pitch I see after missing like three games, home run. Next day, home run. And so I hit three home runs in a row in Minnesota. I come home, home run again. Uh, we're playing the Angels. I hit a home run, and then they pinch hit me of Jason Isringhausen in like the eighth inning. And I'm like, oh, well, this is where this, you know, four in a row, this is where it ends. And he throws me a 2-0 curveball, and I hit it out to center field. I'm like, this is, like, the craziest thing of all time. Like, I don't know how this is happening. And I come back in, and Adam Dunn's standing there. He's like, what is wrong with you? And I go, Dunner, everything I swing at just goes over the fence right now. I hope it never stops. And he just started laughing. He goes, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. 
I'm like, I've never seen it. I don't know what's happening. It's like an out-of-body experience. And uh, the next day, I ended up not hitting a home run. But for those five days, it was like the coolest thing. Just because it never, I wasn't really a power home run hitter. Like for that one year, I figured something out. Now I look back on it, and I'm like, man, if I just would have done that my whole career, I could hit a lot more home runs. Average probably would have suffered, but I figured out like you know how to get a ball out front. You know, launch angle. You know, launch angle is getting the ball more out front, not being afraid to take you know strike out, and and there's some different things. And uh, but for that one year, man, it was fun, and for those five days, it was really fun. Yeah, but if you could do it right now, you wouldn't be worried about your average anymore anyway. You'd be worried about OPS. True, True but I didn't walk, so I had to get my OPS from Slug. All right, uh, wrestling. You're a big wrestling fan. Well, you know who I had on recently? Well, you'll know who he is because you're a wrestling. You're a wrestling guy. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page. Two hours. Yeah. He was uh, really entertaining and actually taught me a little bit about it. Because I remember in the, and, and I went through this whole thing with him in the, in the 90s, on those, in the late 90s on those Reds teams that I was on they were really into the wrestling and they'd have, you know, NWA or I don't know, you know all about it where they'd one half of the locker room would have a certain t-shirt on and the other half Goldberg was showing up hitting BP with us. And that was in the late nineties. I know that wrestling is, is huge in certain circles. Uh, tell me, I, I know you got into it with who Dale Torborg, who's the strength coach, right? With the white Sox. Yeah. He was my, you boy, know? so he, he, he was a wrestler. Before he became right. a strength coach. He was a minor league baseball player. Right. He became a wrestler. And then he became our strength coach, and we became buddies. He was my roommate for years in spring training. Uh, and then after we win the World Series in 05, he's like, hey, I got an opportunity for you to do wrestling. It's in Orlando. Bobby the Brain Heenan, who's a huge was a huge manager guy. Uh, and we're going to do this in-ring thing. Are you going to do it? I'm like, of course. Why would I not? It's easy for me. Uh, we did this like month long run on TNA uh, where it ended up Johnny Damon handed me a home plate. I hit the guy over the head with a home plate. Uh, my bell ends up pinning the guy. Um, it was unbelievable. And then we carried it over to spring training the next year. Ozzy Gian got to hit the same dude with the chair. Uh, and then we carried it over to the next off season where David Eckstein won the world series MVP. And I got to rip up his children's book and came the bad guy. I got to beat up his brother, Rick, who, then a big league hitting. He was my bullpen catcher in Minnesota, and I was the catcher. And then he went on to be a big league hitting coach. I think he might. He's been a big league hitting coach for years and years now, which is kind of a sweet thing. But we got to beat him up one time, and uh, so I mean, I've got to hit people with chairs. I got to go on Raw with WWE with Bob Barker and do this whole, this whole gimmick, this whole angle. Uh, I mean, listen, it, it's. I grew up a wrestling fan. I grew up in Florida in the '80s. Hulk Hogan and those guys were like the biggest thing in the world. Uh, and then I just kind of followed it. I've got to know a bunch of those guys. I still know a bunch of the guys. Uh, they're, they're great people. And I tell people all the time, don't tell me wrestling's fake. Cause I know it's not. Cause I've hit people with objects in the ring. Uh, I know how hard I hit them and how hard they tell me to hit them. The outcomes might be predetermined, but it is not fake. Those guys are unbelievable athletes and deserve a ton of credit for what they do. Very cool. Uh, you're with Fox currently. You started doing it while you were still playing. You were the, the guest. Uh, I don't know how it started in, in 11 or 12. Uh, you started doing it. Do you know when you retired that that's what you want to do, going to the booth, call games? Uh, I didn't know for sure. I knew that I wanted to do something in baseball. I just didn't know what. 
Um, and you know, you got to call some games. I remember you were in the, weren't you in the booth when your brother hit the home run for the, against for the Yankees? Yeah, but that was back. Oh, what was that? Oh, three. They had to like, they asked me about five times. Finally, I said, fine. And I'll go, well, I'll, you know, the, the downside is we had just had a long season. We won like 92 games. We didn't make the playoffs. I was pissed, but I said, okay, Fox, whatever they paid me at the time. It's like, yeah, I can't really turn that down. I'll go out there and just kind of go on a little vacation. I'll get to watch Aaron play a few games. I really didn't take it serious. Like I'd show up the the night before, like right now you, you do it as a job. You're prepared. You've got your <laughs> AJ. You should have seen me in the booth with Buck and McCarver. The first night we'd go down, you know, it was the, it was the Red Sox Yankees. So we'd go down for our pregame and, you know, go into the, the manager's locker room and have our meeting. And I'd sit there and we'd, we'd BS for a while. I'd come up, I'd walk around on the field, you know, field, do my thing. Buck McCarver, they'd go up to the booth. I'd show up five minutes before we go on and Buck would go, Booney, what are you going to say? You got to have an opening. I said, I don't know. What do you want me to say? <laughs> Give it to me. I do. Oh, they had no, they would have notes lined up for days next to them. And I would just pop into the seat and go, okay, let's go. And the thing about it was I never thought about doing it ever. I mean, that was in the middle of my career and I just thought about playing second base and I want to win and I want to win. And I want, I, I never even thought this would be a, something in my mind that I'd like to do cover the game outside of it. You know, that was, I was a different person back then. I never had those thoughts. And, uh, I, I remember feeling uncomfortable because I was a, I was a current player and they'd always kick it to me in a controversial moment. And that's when, remember when Pedro threw that ball behind him, then they got in the fight and he threw Zimmer down. Well, at the time, Alfonso Soriano was a young offensive stud kid hitting a bunch of home runs and he was playing second base, but he was a bad second baseman. And they'd kick it to me, you know, he'd make an error and they'd kick, Hey Brett, why did he make that error? And I'd look at him. I'm like, you know, I got to play against these guys next year. You know, they're listening to me in between innings. What am I going to say? And I'd be like, well, you know, it happens to the best of it. It's happened to me before when my real answer is he stinks and he should be in left field. That's what the real answer was, but I couldn't <laughs> say it. So I, I felt conflicted as a current player when they threw, you know, when Pedro threw that ball behind that guy's back, I forget who the hitter was. First question was, did you do it on purpose? Of course he did it on purpose. But I've got to face Pedro in about three months. Sure enough. You know, I finally go, of course he threw it on purpose. Da, 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 da. I go through my, red, my whole thing. The next day I go down for that manager meeting. Who's the first person I run into? Pedro. Booty, I didn't hit him on purpose. It was a breaking ball. And I'm going, oh, okay, Pedro. You know, so I, I felt conflicted. It was it was weird for me. But going in, I didn't take it serious. I wasn't really prepared for it. I was just kind of there, like I said, for a little vacation. But uh, looking at it now, you know, you know, I take it a little bit more serious now when when talking about the game or reporting on the game. So interesting. It's interesting. You enjoying it? I do. I do. I enjoy it um, a lot because, you know, what? it keeps me engaged. Right. Um, much like this keeps you engaged with people keeps me involved in the game, right? Uh, I get to go travel to watch big league baseball. I get to talk about major league baseball. I get to still see guys. I still, I saw teammates, ex-teammates that are still playing. I get to see a lot of my ex-teammates are now coaches and managers. So uh, you get to, tell, you know, you, you said you get the manager's meetings, you get to talk, and, and you talk to pitchers and you get to learn things. Um, and you, you just get to see how good these guys are. And 
Yeah, when I was still playing, was I a little bit conflicted on that? Yeah, but at the same time, I also thought about it as as me when I played it. If a guy said something about me, I knew I screwed up. I knew I screwed up. And as long as I always was like, all right, as long as I don't get personal and be like, oh, this guy sucks, like you wanted to say, be like, yeah, he made a mistake because, you know, whatever. And I thought players were okay with it. I think it's more about remembering how hard the game is. Like you said about Lou Pinella earlier, like this game is really hard. And, and reminding people that these guys are the best in the world. There's 780 guys in the whole world that play Major League Baseball. And it's really hard. And I think you have to explain that to people because everybody played Little League, right? Or everybody played on their high school team. They're like, how many guys have you had come up to you and say, oh, man, I would have made it, but I had I got hurt or but I had to go to work or whatever. And I'm always like, dude, you would have made it if you would have made it. Right. I mean, yes, it's like always that. Right. It's always. That. But but I, I didn't want to take the time. You know, I had to go to the minor leagues for three years. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Exactly. So, so I mean, baseball is really hard. I mean, all professional sports are really hard. Everybody's perfect. Like I could. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I want to think I could be like a CEO, but I don't know. It's probably really hard, too. Those guys are really good at what they do. Right. Business wise. So it, it was it, it's. It's really hard, and I think as long as you remember that as a, as a broadcaster, even when, I mean, listen, I did a I did a thing with Jimmy Rollins, and uh, I think thirteen, we were in Boston, and shortstop made a mistake, and I said you know, we threw it to Jimmy, kind of the same way on the post game, we're like, you know, Jimmy, what do you got on this? And he kind of gave the generic uh, answer, like you said, and then I go, Jimmy, dude, like what's you know, what's what's going on? He goes, dude, I'm still playing, I can't criticize another player, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but there's a way you can do it, right? There's a way you can do it without like really criticizing him like you can throw it on your lap and say oh i've had this play before and this is why i screwed it up not saying this is what happened but you know like there, there are ways to to around it where you make players understand that even if they're listening like hey this dude gets it right like he gets how hard it is and he gets that we make mistakes and as long as you're not just like oh he went out to the bar last night and got drunk that's why he booted the ball right and you're getting personal with guys and that's when guys get pissed i feel like I ask this question once in a while to the guests. Um, if so, and you might not have this, what advice would you give to an 18-year-old A.J. Przinsky? Oh, geez. What would, uh, what would I give advice to me? You know what? Enjoy, enjoy the ride a little bit more. Enjoy the ride of baseball, playing baseball a little bit more. Because as much as I had fun and as much as I did enjoy it, like we talked about in 05 with the World Series, I wish I would have just taken some steps back and, and, and enjoyed it more. Because when you're in it, you're in it. And you just don't get to enjoy it as much. Now I enjoy watching my son play baseball, my daughter play volleyball. I try to tell them, like, enjoy these moments because they're gone one day. And, and I think as, a, as the next player – don't really realize it while you're in it because you're in it. You're so focused. And I wish I would have, you know, when I was in these cities, go and see the city a little bit more. And I would tell myself, just enjoy everything, the process and enjoy the moments more because when it's done, it's done. And, and that's it. That is so true. You know, I, I told myself every year I went to San Francisco, I was going to go to Alcatraz. Still haven't gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, like that's that. the one good thing about doing the broadcast thing, though, right? I, I get to go back to these cities, 
I have time. So now I can do the things that I, you know, you go to Seattle and you want to go to the fish market. When you're playing, you're like, I'm tired. I don't want to get up. I don't want to walk. Right. Uh, you know, you go to San, San Francisco and you get, you can do Alcatraz one day or you can go you're, you know, wherever you are, you can do these things. And, and, and that's, what's cool about luckily I'm still able to be around, do a lot of stuff that as a player, because you're a player and you don't want to be tired and you don't want to, do something to hurt your game that night. So now I get to go back and do all those things, like you said, like Alcatraz or whatever it is. I, I would tell all these young kids to take advantage of their time and, and use it to, to see places. AJ Przinski, uh it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on. This is a lot of fun. Hope I didn't hurt your reputation of being a jerk. But uh, guys will actually get to hear you and and know that uh, pr- pretty good dude and a, and a smart guy and a hell of a career, man. Appreciate coming on each and every podcast at the end of the Boone podcast. We kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that's the one and only Dan Levy. Dan, we got a uh, question for the fans for AJ. Indeed, we do. And we got one from Mark in Arlington Heights. AJ. Would you ever want to become a manager? And if so, does the White Sox look like a good spot for you? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to be. I'd love to manage the White Sox this year because they're going to win the division by like forty games. So yeah, I'd love to be Tony Larusa right now and have that team lined up in that division. Absolutely. And uh, other than that, uh, let's ask uh, old Brett but, uh, about his brother. He went from like this young. Aaron went from like this young, vibrant, happy-go-lucky guy. Now he's having heart problems. He's got gray hair on his face. I mean. Managing ages you really fast, so I don't know if I want to do that. And the and the follow up question to that is, out of all the teams that you played with, you had so much success. Success. Did you ever think that the greatest accomplishments would come from the White Sox and being in Chicago when you got traded? Um. Yeah. Well, I hoped, uh, but after we, won, I mean, we won my first year, so after that, it was kind of all cake, right? It was all gravy after that because once you win the first, you know, I won the first year as a White Sox, so. And then I got to stay there for seven years after. So, yeah, I never thought that growing up a twin and being a twin. But uh, after being there and playing for the White Sox organization, uh, I was definitely proud to say I was a Chicago White Sox. A.J. Brzezinski, thank you so much for coming on the Boone Podcast, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. What a great time. And, uh, Booney, keep in touch, bub. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.